Heavenly Father, we pray that as we reflect on who your Son is to us during this great time of the year, uh, that we remember that indeed he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us, Lord, open up your word now and impress your word upon us through your Holy Spirit that we might reflect on his nature and his goodness in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. So that would be found, and again, this is not one that has a marked page in your pew Bibles, but it would be 681 inside of your pew Bibles, first page in the New Testament, inside of there, 681. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 25, 18 through 25. So Matthew 1, 18 through 25. <clears throat> this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her? is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So we're now just uh, one week away from Christmas Eve, and thus one week away from Christmas. And uh, today we are going to be looking at three kings, three kings. And you're familiar with the song, Me Three Kings. Well, we're not talking about those three kings. We're going to be talking about a different three kings uh, that you probably are to some degree or another familiar with. And we are going to be talking about uh, how it is that they show us what Jesus was going to look like. Remember, the kings of the Old Testament were people that uh, had not yet known who Jesus was, but these three kings still displayed characteristics of who the coming Messiah would be. And we like to think that three kings had visited Jesus on Christmas Day, as we see oftentimes portrayed inside of our nativity scenes, because the imagery would be absolutely incredible. It would be spellbinding how the kings of the world would come to the king of kings as a baby boy to be able to lay their crowns at his feet before he was even old enough to make a decision on his own. And yet that's not the royal reception that we saw that Jesus received. Instead, upon the news of Jesus' birth, we see rather that King Herod set out to kill him, which I think maybe more, uh, more of an insight into how royalty of this world receives the news of Jesus, not with fanfare, not with joy, not with the type of excitement that you and I as believers in Jesus would have, 
but rather they responded in contempt and with fear that soon their power may be coming to an end. King Herod was not interested in sharing his dominion with Jesus, even knowing that he would be the Messiah. So the three kings that I'm referring to are actually Old Testament figures that lived long before Jesus was born into the world. Their lives, their works, and the prophecies that surrounded them gave the people of ancient times a glimpse of how the coming Messiah would look. Today we're going to be talking about King David, King Hezekiah, and King Josiah. That last one might be very enigmatic uh, to you in the respect that there aren't really necessarily any Christmas passages, that uh, Christmas prophecies, so to speak, that relate to King Josiah, but we'll get into that here in a minute. Rest assured that these are all remarkable men. They were kings that were commended by God, listed as people that followed after God, and they obeyed him boldly, despite cultural norms of their day. Now, David will be the first of the three kings that we will be talking about. And just so often, whenever I hear the name King David, that lots of times you say, huh, David, he brings me relief because David was not a perfect person. And indeed, he was not a perfect person, unless he was a great king. Indeed, he was the second king of Israel. And he even followed a very tough act, even though we don't think of this man in such a way, that being of King Saul. And Saul, when he came to power as Israel's first king, he represented the idea of what a king should look like inside of the world. King Saul was said to be a tall man, taller, a head taller than any man in Israel. He was an ill-tempered man, a great statesman, and a great warrior. But like most politicians, even though he had a terrific start, he became as corrupt as the Dead Sea. Which, by the way, I learned, do not drink water from the Dead Sea. It will come back up. Or it will kill you, one or the other. So that's how corrupt he was. <laughs> and indeed, in that, using that same imagery, Saul was indeed spat back up by God as king. And David was selected as the man who would replace King Saul. Uh, we are told by the Bible that God ended up selecting David, not because of the way that he looked, not because he looked stately or he looked royal or any of these sorts of things, but rather God chose him because of the quality of his heart. When we read David's stories, uh, when we read David's story, we see many qualities of Jesus inside of his life. Indeed, the Bible itself says that David was a man after God's own heart. We see that within the life of David, that he was a very forgiving man. He even forgave his enemies. At times, he even loved his enemies, the very people who were trying to kill him. We see that exemplified when Saul was pursuing him. David had him right where he wanted him, and he spared his life. We see it when Nabal, this, this just very rude and nasty person, was, uh, was just a... a inhospitable toward David's men, and David decided, you know what, maybe we should go out and wipe him out, but instead he chose forgiveness. We see it with Absalom, David's son, who sought to overthrow David, as many sons of kings would do. They would overthrow their father and take over the throne. David chose instead to forgive Absalom. And we see it with Mephibosheth, the grandson of King Saul, who uh, 
by every right uh, in terms of royal tradition, so to speak, that lots of times the royal bloodline would seek to overthrow the king. And instead of King David deciding to wipe out the line of Saul, he decided to extend grace toward Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul. But despite the fact that David displayed so many characteristics of, um, of, uh, of Christ, nonetheless, he was still an imperfect person. Even though he brought Israel into a time like none other inside of their history where they were able to endure peace and gave that kingdom over to his son Solomon, that that peace would be short-lived because of the sins of David. Nonetheless, when we look through the life of David, we are given an, an incredible prophecy, an incredible promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. Let me read that for you. 2 Samuel chapter, what did I say? I think it was chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 12 through 17 read, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So this prophecy is an incredible prophecy that can be applied to both King Solomon in an immediate sense, but also we recognize it as being a prophecy about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David, whose throne would be established for forever. But of course, like I said, as David is acknowledged as being a man after God's own heart, and he showed us the character of Christ in many ways, we also recognize that he was imperfect. We know this because it is recorded that he was both an adulterer and a murderer. Moving on. The second king we'll be looking at, King Hezekiah. One of the kings with a particularly funny name. Hezekiah, isn't that a fun name to just kind of rolls off your tongue after a little bit? And, and actually, story about Hezekiah, one of my friends uh, in a moment of uh, compromise, I guess, I don't know what you want to call it, where I wasn't really thinking, um, he uh, asked me which one, of these, uh, which one of these names is not the name of a book in the Bible, Hezekiah. Hezekiah is not the name of a book in, a, in the inside of the Bible, okay? So don't be tricked if somebody throws those at you real fast and Hezekiah happens uh, to be in there. But Hezekiah was not a king of Israel. He was a king of Judah. Let me give you a little bit of background on that. After King Solomon's rule, he had a son by the name of Rehoboam. Rehoboam created such a divide inside of the nation of Israel that Israel was split in two, into a northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and to a southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Okay, so it got split, and King Hezekiah became the king of Judah. And he was of the bloodline of David, by the way. So King Hezekiah was a descendant directly of King 
David. Incredible thing about Hezekiah is he brought reformation throughout Judah. He even destroyed the bronze snake that Moses had constructed because the people of Judah began to use it as an idol. Now, what bronze snake am I talking about? When the snakes started biting people in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness, um, that uh, Moses was commanded to make a bronze snake and set it up on a stick and to raise it up so people could look upon it and be healed of the snake bites. In fact, it's even uh, the verse before, <clears throat> before John 3.16 talks about this bronze snake that Moses lifted up. And the people in Judah had set it up as an idol and started to worship the bronze snake that Moses had constructed. Now, inside of this itself, this should give us a great illustration about how we ought to honor God and his commands, even above idolizing ancient traditions. In fact, we know that Jesus preached mightily against the, against the traditions of the Pharisees. He would observe that the Pharisees revered their traditions so much that they would compromise the faith given to them by God himself, the commands that God had given to them by himself, for the sake of honoring their traditions instead. Hezekiah was a reformer in the truest sense of the word. Not only did he dismantle the silly old traditions that they had developed, he removed the smut that had nothing to do with the heritage of neither, Jordan, with neither Judah nor Israel. He destroyed all the pagan places of worship, every last one of them. Now, I know that sometimes we as Americans, we look at things like this, we say, smashed all the other places of worship? Man, that is just so not right. It's hard for us to appreciate what was really going on back then, especially considering, considering reality that, as I like to say, the Bible is a tale of two covenants, and the Old Covenant made no room whatsoever inside the land for pagan worship. In fact, there is a curse placed upon the land because of the type of worship that was going on that did not honor the true God. And so Hezekiah, he did away with all that. He smashed all the idols, tore down all the high places, and he directed Judah's attention toward God. Now many people believe that a particular famous Christmas prophecy could be applied to Hezekiah as well. In fact, that was, if I'm not mistaken, the initial understanding of a particular, what we would call, Christmas prophecy. Um, and in a similar manner to which the last prophecy I read could be applied to both Solomon and then to Christ, so is this one oftentimes attributed to Hezekiah and then to Christ. That being Isaiah 7, 14, which reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Does one sound familiar? The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel. Of course, Emmanuel means God with us. Now, that sounds like a weird prophecy to apply to Hezekiah. Was Hezekiah born of a virgin? Well, no. Was he, was he Emmanuel, God with us? Well, no, absolutely not. He was not Emmanuel, but the way they would have interpreted that would, would have been that this king would have brought the presence of God along with him upon the land. Regarding being born of a virgin, well, this is another thing that culturally we don't quite get because culture has shifted and changed so much. The word in Hebrew for virgin uh, would have been a word that meant an unwed young woman. Okay? Well, in our culture, we don't necessarily make the connection of a uh, young unwed woman with a virgin. 
But back then, inside their culture, in the, na in the nation of Judah, in the nation of Israel, they would have acknowledged that an unwed young woman would presumably be, what? A virgin. And so, to them, that made perfect sense that when Hezekiah was born of a young woman, uh, that later on, when we look at the prophecy as it's given to us inside of the book of Matthew, that the, that the prophecy still applies because it actually applies more directly because Jesus was not just born of a young woman. He was born of an actual virgin. So we're given this prophecy uh, that both applied to Hezekiah and to Jesus Christ. And uh, Hezekiah would go on to do lots of other great things, by the way. One of the great stories about Hezekiah, and I'm not going to go into the details of it. I'd encourage you to read it for yourself. That being of how Hezekiah was instrumental in the deliverance of Judah from the hands of Assyria. Right now, what you need to know about Hezekiah was that he was a great king of Judah. He brought reformation, served God with his whole heart, delivered Judah from Assyria, and yet he still fell short of God's righteousness. Out of pride, he made a mistake. He showed off the nation's treasures to the envoys of Babylon. And when Isaiah, the prophet, confronted him about this, he then also revealed to Hezekiah that everything that you showed off to the envoys of Babylon will one day be carried off to Babylon by the Babylonians. So Hezekiah was not Jesus. He was not the Messiah. He was not perfect, but his life did indeed foreshadow the life and works of Jesus Christ. Now after Hezekiah, before we get to our last king, let's give you a little bit of context. Hezekiah had a son by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh undid a lot of the things that Hezekiah had done. In 2 Kings 21, 2 through 3, we learn that Manasseh rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. So basically, what did Manasseh start doing? This would be Hezekiah's son. He started worshiping pagan gods. The passage goes on to describe even more about the evil things that Manasseh had done. And you would think that, wow, what a dark turn for the nation of Judah as a result of this terrible tragedy. But it leads us into the third king that I'd like to discuss. That being Hezekiah's grandson, Manasseh's son, Josiah. Now, when I first read about Josiah, I thought to myself, why on earth do we as a church not talk more about Josiah? Josiah was an incredible king that honored God in a way that none other had. In fact, in 2 Kings 23-25, it is written, Neither before nor, nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul. Uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. And with all his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. In fact, that line is even taken out of the law of Moses as being the, the Shema, the very thing that Jesus cited as being the great command of God right there. They're saying that Josiah did that. That is incredible. What an amazing king. Now, what else did he do throughout his reign that affirmed this statement that the Bible tells us? First of all, I want to point out Josiah took the throne when he was eight years old. Could you imagine? Eight years old as a king. Now, to me, this kind of gives us a window once again into Jesus, who when he was born was a baby, but was king. 
nonetheless. So the age was irrelevant. Eight years old at king? All right, if Jesus teen eternally was born as a baby, I guess we can, we can uh, stomach that. Something changed for Josiah. When he turned 18 years old, Josiah decided to defy the practices of his father Manasseh in order to follow God. He tore down the high places and banned pagan worship, just as Hezekiah had done. But why would he do such a thing? What changed in his heart to make him do this wonderful act? We learn in 2 Kings 22 that Hilkiah, who was a priest that served in the temple, found the book of the law in the temple. Now, this book of the law must have been lost or neglected or something for a very long time uh, because Josiah's reaction to it was profound. And we see that in 2 Kings 22, 13, where Josiah says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written concerning us. Josiah moved forward by obeying God's laws and renewing the covenant of God with the people of Judah. And it reminds me of the covenant that Jesus would make with his disciples and with his followers that was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. I'll read it. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. What a remarkable story. What a remarkable life, and what a great man of God that Josiah was. You might ask, how did his life end? Sadly, it was tragic. For whatever reason, God commanded Necho, king of Egypt, to do battle in Carchemish, which, by the way, is in the land of Judah. Is it sounding like a problem here, the king of Egypt going to Judah? But God commanded him to do so. And we learn about this in 2 Chronicles 35. Now, the battle had nothing to do with Judah. He was actually going against other opposing forces, the Babylonians in Carchemish. It just so happened that it was in Judah. Josiah defied the orders from God given to the king of Egypt and ultimately was killed in battle. So even Josiah the righteous could not uphold the perfect goodness and obedience of Jesus Christ. Throughout history, God has fulfilled his promises. He delivered the promised king, Jesus, through Judah to Israel, despite the nation's rough history. What can we take away from this lesson? We are called to be perfect as God himself is perfect. But no matter how righteous we might be from time to time, we will never fully achieve the holiness of Jesus Christ. Even in his holiness and righteousness, though, Jesus still chooses to forgive us of our sins, delivers us from our enemies, cleans up our lives, reveals to us his will for us, 
and even established a covenant that would never be broken. Jesus himself is responsible for all the good in our lives. And our responsibility is to attribute the work that we accomplish, not to ourselves, but to the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you humble us through our reading of these great kings of history that were men of God that maybe we can't even fathom, serving in a position of power and yet honoring you despite the cultural pressures of their day. Father God, we pray that we would follow their example recognize Christ working in their lives and understand that Jesus moves in our lives the same. Let us acknowledge you as King of Kings and Lord of Lords of our lives and let us be obedient to you this day and onward. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.